Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? As always, I'm well, John. How are you? Good, good. Good. Trying to, trying to keep up on all the, the news. Uh, FinTech is uh, just a very lively area these days. Uh, well, always. It's never uh, tough to find something new going on, good and bad. It seems like some companies are kind of dropping off in, in valuations, like a bunch of SPACs from last year are not quite living up to their full potential. And then uh, the big guys are buying in, like uh, Goldman buying Next Capital. So Apple was buying an open banking company. Um, just a very dynamic market as usual. Even during the pandemic, huh? it's, just, it's, it's, it's a never-ending process. Yes, yes, especially during the pandemic. Uh, well, the valuations got away from, from a few companies a little bit. And, uh, you know, we always talk about, well, we don't always talk about, but there's always a lot of news about Amazon um, becoming bank-like. Uh, and, and they're in the news uh, again for adding more stuff. So you have to, uh, to pay attention to a lot of things to be a smart investor in the fintech world. But fortunately, we have somebody that uh, does exactly that. Rob Antoniades, the co-founder and general partner of VC firm Information Venture Partners. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, there is always a lot of stuff um, uh, coming in and out of fintech, like we just mentioned. Uh, what's exciting you these days in the world of uh fintech investing. Yes, there's there's a lot going on in fintech, um, at least the way we look at fintech. And so it's exciting times to be here. And, and frankly, I think it's going to be an exciting decade for fintech. Uh, I see no end to the changes that financial institutions uh, need to make in order to be competitive in the, in the, in the market, uh, competing both against each other and against ultimately this, the disruptors. And so lots, lots of interesting things going on and I'm, I'm happy to go through and rattle a few off for you. Let's talk about what's happening in wealth as an example, 30, $35 trillion of wealth is gonna change hands from, from the boomers to the next generation to their kids. And what do we do with all that money and how do we manage it and where does it go? So it's a wonderful I think I was, setup. I think I was born into the wrong family. Well, yes, it's <laughs> luckily not one family. I'm not getting any of that. <laughs> Although there's a couple of families in Seattle that are contributing a lot to that. Um, but uh, it, it's, you know, this intergenerational wealth transfer. And, and so how does a financial institution deal with that? And I, you know, the answer is not simple because the kids who are going to inherit this money don't have that same relationship that the parents had with, uh, with their financial advisor. And so uh, opportunities to develop relationships, to change how we serve the customers, the next generation customers to become more digital, uh, to become encompassing uh, in, in their service provision. You know, today, I think you and I would probably have a financial advisor. Next generation doesn't want a financial advisor. They want a life coach. They want somebody who's there through the, through the thick and thin and uh, somebody they have a relationship who's available 24-7 through digital means and, and mobile means. And I think so. There's Lots of investment that's going to happen there. Uh, but before we get there, you know, we have to take care of those that are aging. And so how does somebody who has accumulated or this generation that has accumulated $30 trillion of assets, how do we serve them? All of that, what we do in wealth, as an example, is to help people save, to achieve their lifetime goals and ambitions, to prepare for retirement, to buy the car, to go on vacation, to pay for their kids, 
education, we spend very little time, money, effort, and technology on, and on actually helping the, those who are retired spend that money effectively um, and plan for it effectively to minimize taxes, to optimize for healthcare costs and, and the un, unpredictable and, and personal, you know, social, uh, personal care workers and, and things like that. So a lot of investment, a lot of area uh, to invest in there. So, you know, we've seen an explosion of financial crime over the last uh, a couple of decades. And, and that's both in the traditional world as well as in the crypto world where we've seen some massive leakages. Um, and so how do we stay ahead of that? Well, the only way to address it is through technology. Um, and I think there's a lot of value to bringing technologies to be predictive uh, in, in trying to identify these, these crimes before they happen and prevent them from happening. And, and they can take all forms. Uh, it could be as simple as debit card fraud or credit card fraud, but it could also be elder abuse, human trafficking. It can, be, it can take many forms. And the only way we get there is through using technology, applying AI algorithms to look at the patterns uh, uh, of, uh, of behaviors uh, that can identify kind of the risks there that uh, on certain transactions or, or on all transactions, frankly, and identify the ones that are going to be of high risk and save everybody a lot of money. Are, uh, there, so I, are there a couple of uh, AI ways to attack that problem? Or are there some specific technologies that, that you see that are especially effective for, for that kind of detection? Uh, so there, there certainly are ways to do it. Um, I would tell you that the, the, the way to do it is not a question for me. It's a question for the AI experts, but one of our portfolio companies, Verifin, as an example, uh, used to do that extremely effectively. They built up a capability to continually um, uh, sort of screen for new and more advanced uh, ways uh, of, of committing crimes. And so the, their AI algorithms were trained specifically to identify the patterns that each of those different crime vectors would take. And, so, uh, so Rob, um, I understand that your, your company uh, essentially invests mostly in very early stage companies, sort of the, at the seed stage, and I'm going to say A or, or before. How do you assess whether a company has the right technology and the right tools for you to make an investment at such an early stage? Do you go by the founder and the team or the problem space, or what kind of uh, rubric do you use to assess the potential of a company? Yeah, so it's 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 exactly what we do. It's uh, we look at the team and we look at the underlying technology. But one of the thing ways that we're different is that uh, we uh, have a bunch of financial institutions as limited partners. So we work very closely with that those organizations and the expertise that each of those organizations has. Uh, and we use them to help us figure out what the problem statement is. So when, when we're looking at opportunities, we're actually trying to identify the problem statement that they're solving. And working backwards from there, then we can assess the, the technology that these founders have developed. Is this the right way to solve this problem? And is this problem pervasive? And are, willing to people, are people willing to pay for solutions? Um, and so we work very closely with our our strategic partners in the fund and, and ourselves, we've come from the different parts of finance. Uh, so we are familiar with many of the issues that our entrepreneurs are trying to, to solve. I've, I've come through capital markets uh, trading and investment banking. My partner came up from 
commercial and corporate banking as well as strategy and, and online banking. So we ourselves have had some of the, uh, the backgrounds and the experience that, that, uh, that comes into play when assessing these things. Uh, but when, you, when you're looking at early stage investing, for us, early stage investing means some revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. To others, pre-seed folks might mean pre-revenue. But in general, when we look at opportunities, there are enough customers, maybe it's a handful of customers that we can really talk to in detail to ascertain the differentiation of what is being presented. It seems like there's a lot of competition now to get that that um, that seed stage, that Series A uh, round now with more firms coming into the market. Um, we talked about last week how Sequoia now has a program where they're actually going to be sort of become sort of an incubator. And of course, you're, you're competing with uh, with actual incubators and accelerators and the corporate stuff as well. So how do you maintain that edge um, uh, in, in the face of so much money sloshing around right now? So I, I think we actually don't compete with all of those. I think our incubators, accelerators are partners to us because we use them to feed us opportunities and we evaluate their cohorts and we work closely with some of them and we we participate and and do uh, you know do, do our bit to help those cohorts. So. Um, to us, it's not necessarily competition. It's possibly co-opetition with the other funds as well. We syndicate a lot of our deals. I think the, the, the way to deal with a lot of the capital that's out there is to differentiate yourself through your track record, how you work with portfolio companies. And I think the entrepreneurs are always looking for value-added partners. Money is money, and there are billions of dollars sloshing around for early-stage venture uh, including fintech, and so for us, it's helping the entrepreneurs understand that they are that our portfolio, our our approach to managing our portfolio is different. Most venture funds, early stage venture funds, may have 40, 50 investments. We're precision investors. Our funds will have eight, 10, 12 companies to uh, to a fund, and okay. so what we do is we work extremely closely with our with our teams. We don't run the companies, but we are involved in helping them define their strategies. We get involved in some of the operational issues, obviously building teams and boards, but also simple things like go-to-market partnerships and how to structure those and make those introductions, pricing, how to appropriately price your product. Um, uh, We also work very closely with our LPs to introduce these companies as potential vendors into those organizations. Um, and when we have, you know, we have five of Canada's top seven banks as limited partners, I think that's a differentiator and entrepreneurs understand that. And the Canadian banking system, if you go back through the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, was recognized as being the most stable uh, banking system in the world. Not a dollar of taxpayers' money was went in to support it. And so, these entrepreneurs want these institutions as customers, and we work very closely with the innovation teams of those organizations to help, you know, uh, uh, um, accelerate the process of, uh, of selling into those organizations. So there's lots of different things that we do uh, mm-hmm. that are that I think differentiate us from uh, the rest of the investors out there. But at the end of the day, if somebody wants money. They want money. If they want the highest valuation, they'll take the highest valuation. If they want a brand instead of a partner, they'll go for the brand. But for those entrepreneurs who actually do the work to understand how uh, how important it is to pick a good partner, 
I think we stand out and we've got a pretty good track record of, of uh, delivering value to all of them. How, how do you feel about the uh, uh, sky high valuations for some companies in some areas? Um, do you think there's going to be uh, kind of like a gradual decline or maybe a, a bust? Are you concerned about these uh, valuations and the way that affects what companies you can invest in? Yeah, I, I think we're always concerned about valuations. Um, uh, valuations are sky high still, I think, in the big scheme of things. I think they've corrected a little bit, uh, but we haven't seen the domino effect yet get down to, the, to that very early stage. We've seen it in the later stage, which will then impact the mid-stage, the early stage, the seed stage, but it hasn't filtered through all the way to us, to our level yet. Um, and, and so we, we have to be careful, and I think it's, it's going to be impactful, and every generation of VCs goes through an event, uh, whether it was the dot-com boom bust or the financial crisis. You know, this last generation, people who joined this business venture in the last 12, 14 years have not seen a down cycle, uh, but they do come. They're unavoidable, and sometimes they're rapid. Uh, you know, they're, they're more rapid than we expect. Uh, but I don't think they're crashes. And I think uh, there is a danger that we are kind of on that slope now. Um, I thought COVID might be that slope, and I was absolutely wrong. Um, I thought when, when that first hit us, uh, the markets would adjust, adjust quickly, and I, they adjusted for a month and then bounced back and bounced back to record levels. But those record levels weren't sustainable. And, and so, Steve, John, that's what you're seeing is, is a, the beginnings of a correction hasn't filtered through yet. Um, I know the flip side of that argument is there's a lot of money out there and has to be put to work. Uh, I understand that. And, and we've, we saw a lot of money on the sidelines during the dot-com era when the bust hit. Uh, but when the market freezes, the market freezes and people are reluctant to make investments that can make them look bad. There's still investments that, are get, that get made, but certainly the, the pace at which we invest changes. Uh, um, dramatically, um, slows down dramatically. And I think that's what we should expect at some point in the next few years, even though there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. I think that people will be much, much more diligent um, in, in the companies they invest in, and they will be much more disciplined in how much they pay. Um, everybody has a reality check at some point. We all have bosses, right? So unfortunately, the, I have daily reality checks. I, I can't get the, uh, <laughs> it's the, uh, it's the success part I'm trying to work on. Uh, any, any uh, tips you would give to somebody uh, looking for venture money? Any common mistakes you'd, you'd like, uh, you'd like to see people avoid more? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the, the effort to build relationship to these with VCs is actually, um, gone by the wayside. I think we, entrepreneurs don't spend enough time uh, working with VCs ahead of time and, and building relationships to, to understand how that VC works and what value they can add. And because I'm always open to helping an entrepreneur as best as I can, especially entrepreneurs that we're interested in, in investing in at some point in the future. And I think that that helps the entrepreneur evaluate the type of partner that they're that one they're looking for and the type of partner that you can be. And so uh, my tip is, you know, there's a lot of money out there um, and there's going to be people who throw term sheets down on the table and you're going to be, you, you, you know, you're going to be um, 
possibly kind of taken by these, these term sheets and valuations. But I think fundamentally, you're looking for a partner in the business. You're not looking for the biggest check or the highest valuation. And so take the time, as crazy as it seems when things are almost instantaneous in the markets today, take the time to build relationships and evaluate your partners uh, on the merits of, of, of being there for the next five to seven years. It takes a long time to build great companies. Um, that, that's the truism. Uh, yes, there's, there's possibilities for you to increase your valuation very quickly, but to build great companies, fundamentally sound companies takes time. Uh, any difference between uh, Canadian and American companies when you talk to Oh, them? great question. Uh, other than the accents? Uh, <laughs> what's, what's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> Oot and a boot. Uh, I don't think we say that, but uh, is it? I don't know if there is, to be honest with you, because the world is, it, it, there are no more borders. The blogs that the entrepreneurs read south of the border are the same blogs that the entrepreneurs read north of the border. The experiences, we're all getting the same data feeds. We're all seeing the same valuations. Uh, and so I think entrepreneurs on, uh, act similarly uh, on both sides of the border. Maybe inherently Canadians are more conservative. I think that is true. I think mm -hmm. it's still true. Uh, but and, and so maybe they take a slightly different view on on what their value is. But I, I, I suspect that it's pretty much the same, um, at least the way they they approach uh, fundraising and, and how to build companies. There's there's so much. There's so much info out there. I think if you look at Y Combinator, you know, the, the number one or number two source of, of uh, entrepreneurs is actually Canada. It's the, it's the University of Waterloo graduates. Uh, that maybe oh, that's pretty fascinating. Interesting. Um, on that same note as well, I know that um, here in the U.S., maybe like three years ago under the Trump presidency, there was a lot of consternation about the fact that maybe Canada was going to see, um, or the U.S. rather, was going to see a lot of immigrants who instead of coming to the U.S., would go to Canada um, because of their more open and flexible, not 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 open actually, um, because of their different immigration policies. Um, have you seen that the way in which U.S. policy has affected how much talent you can attract as uh, as Canadians? Yes, we have. We absolutely have. I think there's the the Canadian system is easier and it's more welcoming, and the uh, the points based scoring system that we have. Uh, is is very effective in bringing talent relevant to the technology industry. And so we have seen people make conscious decisions not to move to the U.S., but to move to Canada um, because they qualify. And their objective is, is ultimately a better life for themselves and for their children. And Canada's quality of life is very similar to the U.S. It's, 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 it's a different life, but it's a very similar quality of life. And so we have been beneficiaries of that. And we've also been beneficiaries of people who can't get their visas renewed in the U.S., uh, moving to Canada instead of moving back home. And I think, uh, lastly, there, there's even been cases of Americans saying, you know, I've, I've, I've probably seen enough. I think I want to yeah. move. Uh, it, you know, it's, there's not a stampede. No, nobody's, you know, <laughs> running over the gates at the border. But uh, certainly there have been people who've made that conscious decision. And I don't know if if it's, you know, what the, what that rate is today, but certainly during the Trump administration, I think we saw, uh, we saw some of that. Um, but we also see Canadians moving south and, and moving to the U.S. Uh, fewer, I think, today than pre-COVID because many of them can do exactly what they need to do 
uh, still while still living in Canada and not having to move to to the Valley or other parts of the U.S. Is there any particular segment of of Canadian fintechs that you've seen that really interests you? Is there any subset subset of the fintech space or problem space rather that whenever you you see a company now you think, hey, that deserves sort of a a, a deeper look as well? So our our model is all B two B fintech. Mm-hmm. So we we don't look at consumer opportunities. Uh, that's uh, we can we can we choose not to. We think those are fundamentally different models. And, and so uh, what we focus on are really the, the technologies that sell into the insurers and the asset managers and the capital markets organizations and the banks and, and the different parts of those organizations. And, and if, you, if you know the Canadian ecosystem, and you might not, the, the second largest financial center in North America uh, is Toronto. Um, it's uh, after New York. It's not San Francisco. It's not Chicago. It's, it's Toronto. And the second or third largest IT ecosystem in, in North America is Toronto. So we have a very good kind of melting pot of, of people with financial services domain experience uh, uh, who are looking to solve problems. And, and we've got wonderful technical talent here as well. It's true around the country as well, but, but specifically in, in Toronto. So there's, there's a lot of, of technologies uh, in and around uh, the the areas that have a concentration in Toronto, so a lot about kind of uh, the back offices of of banks, uh, a lot around risk and uh, lending, and uh, uh, there's a lot of opportunities uh, within capital markets, uh, risk scoring models, trading platforms. So there's there's a a pretty decent community of companies that represent the broad fintech ecosystem. And so are there areas where we specialize? Yes, AI would be one. Certainly have a concentration here uh, in Canada, uh, Montreal and Toronto, uh, and even other places like Edmonton. So is that a differentiator? Yes, do we look at the, a lot of that? We, we, we certainly do. Uh, do we have areas, other areas, payments? Another area where I would suggest uh, Montreal, very strong. Toronto has got a good presence, but we've got companies. Our most recent investment is a payments company in, in, in uh, Calgary, but also in Vancouver. Um, uh, do we see uh, a lot of banking as a service? I think we've seen a fair amount uh, that's being developed here uh, um, in Canada uh, for application in Canadian market and ultimately for the export to, to other markets. Um, so we're seeing the same waves we're we're picking our spots to see where we're most interesting, uh, that are most interesting to us. How do you see uh, the big tech companies? Uh, we mentioned Apple briefly, kind of uh, jumping into some fintech. Amazon, um, you, you see Google, and and even the large banks. Um, uh, Goldman buying up a lot of fintechs. Everyone's uh, a fintech they, now. Everybody's a, well. Some some are really um, investing. Visa, Mastercard buying a lot of fintechs. Uh, do you what kind of impact does that have on on the ecosystem? What what are you seeing out of that? It's only natural that these organizations would do it. Uh, one, they have the technical capabilities, and second, in many cases, they have the customers or access to the customer and the customer relationships. So it's a natural evolution for them to provide fintech. Uh, so I think that's 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 here to stay, and uh, um, you know, financial institutions have to have to deal with it. 
with with respect to Goldman Sachs buying things, I think those are decisions that each FI needs to make as to whether or not they're going to buy versus build. And, uh, and you know, I think we're going to see a bunch of that continuing to happen. Um, I think financial institutions have realized they can't build everything themselves. You know, rewind the clock 20 years ago, they were probably trying to build most of it. Today, that's just not feasible. There's no way they can have access to that much talent and there's way too much to do. Um, and so they're working with third-party vendors. And if it's core to the platform, at some point they will want to own it. And whether they own it by buying it or building it, that's the way that decision gets made. So I think uh, uh, that's that's a, a trend we will also continue to see as each financial institution tries to find its place in the world. I think I'm missing one element of the question, and I don't recall what that was. Oh well, I was just curious if um, that had an impact on uh, maybe. Uh, with the uh, large amount of money, uh, uh, let's say a Goldman can can put into play, or, or or an Amazon, if they maybe they can crowd out a space, or or you think, well, if I invest in this company, they've got to go against some aggressive investing by established players in this area, or is it just too big and too spread out, and that's not much of a concern? I, I think each of those organizations is going to look at what is core to them. And does Amazon want to be a bank? Because if it does, it can easily become a bank by buying a license or, or applying for a license. Uh, but do they want the overhead, the regulatory overhead of being a bank? I don't, I'm not sure they do. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound like it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and so you, you have to do that introspection as, as big tech and consumer facing companies to, to really make a difficult decision because Regulatory overhead isn't getting any lighter. It's only more demanding. It's only, you know, more more uh, intrusive every year. And so, I'm not sure the right decision for each of these organizations is to is to become a financial institution. But providing some financial services with fintech partners may make a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's probably the route that many of them will go and they'll embed it. They'll embed it into their product set um, and, and that's the way they will approach it. Or if they find that it's core, then they'll do something about it. Uh, so more like a, a lot of uh, uh, embedded finance, a lot of specialization in their areas and, sure. and not so much. Uh, Absolutely. Well, it's a big area to, to dominate anyway. So yes. lots of opportunities. But, but offering a, you know, a credit product to your customers. If you see all their transactional be, um, data or, or have access to your financial data, makes a lot of sense. But you don't need to become a bank to do that. You can partner with somebody to do that. Cross River Bank and yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of places out there. So what do you, what's the future for Information Venture Partners? What would you like to see happen for you guys and, and maybe in the market that would be good for you guys in the next uh, two or three years or so? Well, it'd be great if all of our portfolio companies were bought <laughs> yeah. for billions of dollars. But but realistically, we're we're evolving our our model as we always do. As I said, the themes have been generally the same, but we are kind of expanding the sub themes. We're expanding the team. Uh, so we'll be uh, with the next fund which we're raising uh, this year. We'll double the partnership to to four partners. So we continue to do what we do well. And we hope that uh, we continue to, to meet the needs of the entrepreneurs that are out there. Um, and markets will be what they will be. And valuations will be what they will be. And com competition is, 
is there. It always is. Uh, so we still have to do uh, what we need to do to uh, to stand out from the crowd and and hopefully kind of our approach of being uh, entrepreneur friendly, but uh, but but active and and helpful and uh, is going to continue to differentiate us. We have no ambitions of being a billion dollar fund. Um, you know, we're we're happy to be hundred and fifty million dollar fund. Uh, that's our model. So let the let the wind be in our sails and for the next decade or so, and I think we'll all be happy. Yeah, great. Keep up the good work. Well, hopefully that results in billions coming in on that one fifty million out. It, uh, but uh, yeah, been good, very good successful so far. Yes, thank you. It's been successful so far. Yeah, yeah. And if you're interested in a hundred million dollar fintech podcast, we can talk after the show. <laughs> Uh, we 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 can we can take that offline. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> All right, appreciate it. Always happy to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Best of luck to you. That's Rob Antoniadis, the co-founder and general partner of Information Venture Partners. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening. 